Friends, would you please stand with me as we turn again to Matthew chapter 2, and as we read Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Again, this is the Lord's word. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated, friends? And again, let us look to the Lord. We thank you, Father, again for your kindness and pray that your blessing be upon your word, upon this, your servant, and upon these, your people, that you will give us ears to hear, that you will help us, Lord, as some are fighting sickness and others are just weary, and we pray, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage your people, that your word going forward would edify us, build us up, strengthen faith, and prepare us for the week ahead. We pray that we would grow closer to you in our understanding and that we would grow in our love for you and our wonder at your many kindnesses. That we would see, O oh Lord, that it is not just in the Bible where we see your hand at work, but that we see your hand at work even today in the lives, in our own lives, in the lives of your people. Encourage us, we pray now. I humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from John 19, we read this. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This text from John 19 displays a problem that is not uncommon in dealing with Jesus Christ. The fact that he, that is Jesus, 
can be both Messiah and at the same time suffer, that he can be both a king and be lowly and come to serve and not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. We want kings and deliverers who are powerful, who are persuasive, who don't seem to sweat. Look at the presidential elections just are um, campaigning now, just getting into gear for 2024. Who do you want as a president? Think about how you look at a president. Do you want someone strong or do you want someone feeble? Right? This is the way we think. This is the way we look. There has never been a king like Jesus Christ. Mark my words. There has never been a king like Jesus Christ. He was meek. He was lowly. There was nothing especially physically impressive about him. Jesus Christ didn't hobnob with the rich and famous. He didn't hobnob with the well-to-do, but he hung out with fishermen and tax collectors and those others would likely not consider to hang out with. So how is it that he should be called a king and why should he be looked to as a Messiah? Matthew, after all, is writing to the Jews and this is the problem the Jews are having with them. In fact, Peter, or rather Paul would say in... Uh, in verse 1 that the or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 he would say that to the Jew the cross is foolishness and to the Greeks it's unwise it's a problem for the Jews how do we have a messiah who's going to be crucified nobody wants a messiah this way so how is it that he should be called a king and why should he be looked to as a messiah I believe Matthew is addressing for his readers two main points here. That the sorrow we face in this world is the result of our rebellion against God. And we'll show that from the scriptures. And secondly, because of his humility and obedience, our sorrow is turned into rejoicing. Fundamental points for us. The greatest mistake any person can ever make is to devalue who Jesus Christ is because he came to serve and not to subjugate. We want someone who comes and talks big and who, who puts demands upon us and we are ready to follow them, but someone who comes lowly serving and we are ready to walk all over him and to ignore him. We'd rather put our confidence in swords and in tanks and in chariots and in money, but not in weakness. And they did this with Jesus Christ. This is what made it so difficult for them because they had an idea of who the Messiah should be. He's from Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Because he was lowly, they would take him for granted. But understand, my friends, that Jesus Christ, the one that so many people want to take for granted, the one that people think he's just some soft, effeminate, mamsy-pamsy man, he wasn't. This is the way the world portrays him. I'd rather put my hope in something strong. It was Adolf Hitler, according to Eric Metaxas in his book on Bonhoeffer. He says Adolf Hitler wanted the Muslims. He wanted us. He, he valued the strength of the Muslims, not the Christians. They're weak. And people look at Jesus Christ like this. But the funny thing is, is that in the weakness, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And he conquered. 
Think of that. Think of that imagery. The conquering lamb. Tell me there's not something that doesn't strike the opposite as a conquering lamb. But this was Jesus. Notice here, friends, as we look at verses 16 and 18, first of all, that outside of Christ, man's condition is one of sorrow. Outside of Christ, man's condition is one of sorrow. Look with me, if you will, verses 16 through 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Again, Matthew here, he is written to inform the Jews of the fact that their Messiah, the son of David, has come and that they should be worshiping him. That's what we've been seeing from chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to this point. God has raised up and leads the wise men that they would come from a great distance to be his worshipers. But while he has those who will worship the Christ child, he also has those who would seek to destroy his life. One in particular would be King Herod, Herod the Great. Matthew tells us that Herod was known for being a capable politician. He was not ignorant, but was a very crafty man. And we also know that he was quite extremely cruel. So obsessed with his own kingship that any threat to his throne, he would quickly deal with. For this reason, it was said and has been said about Herod the Great that a sow had a better chance with Herod than did his own sons. And in fact, he put to death Uh, his sons for fear that they would take his throne from him. So then it should not surprise us when Matthew relates to his readers that Herod the Great tries to trick the Magi into giving up the location of the newborn king of Israel in order to destroy him. Matthew informs his readers that this is what Herod has done, but while Herod's attempt was to destroy the Lord Jesus, the Lord, that is God the Father, saw to it that nothing would happen to his son, the king, until the appointed time. And as we come to verse 16, we have this very grim picture given to us. Again, look at this. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Herod has realized that he has been tricked by the Magi. They were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. They obey the Lord. They don't return to Herod. And Herod becomes enraged. He sends out soldiers to go and slay all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. This was based on the time which he had determined from the Magi of when they had seen his star. Herod is excessive. He's excessive. He doesn't want any child to slip through. So he broadens the circle to ensure a success of destruction and he destroys all these children two years old and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity. He gives the command. The brutal task is carried out and a great sorrow fills the souls and hearts of many in that area. Estimates, you may be surprised, are not very large. Based on history and statistics, estimates are in the low double digits, perhaps 20. 
you know, you look at that and you say, well, that's just 20 people. That's not like 3,000 people. That's not a huge number. Yet we, we quantify things um, when it comes to tragedies. In December of 2012, Sandy Hook took place, the Sandy Hook shootings. 26 people were killed. 20, 20 of those 26 were children. How do you think those parents feel? You think there's great mourning and wailing even to this day? I would say so. They lost 20 children. We say, well, 20 doesn't sound like a lot. It doesn't need to be a lot for it to be a horrible event. Again, the point is, is that Herod was enraged and he went after the newborn king and he would have, were it not for God's providence and God's care, they would have killed, he would have killed the newborn child. Every life, my friends, every life is, 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 is of tremendous value. You don't take one, you don't take 20, you don't take 300,000, you don't take a life because the Lord says that's murder and the Lord, um, the Lord hates the unjust taking of life. And so when we, we say, and I'm sorry, but we say things like, well, we'll limit abortion to six weeks. I'm sorry. That's still a life. And the Lord abhors the unjust taking of life. Bear that in mind this month. Bear that in mind. Murder is brutal. The unjust taking and destroying of any life, yet this is what Herod did because of his self-love, and it is no different today. That's what it boils down to. But even this event um, was not outside of God's sovereign realm, and we see this. He controls both the good and the bad and ordains them to serve his glorious purpose. Feeble minds, finite minds, I should say, have a difficult time wrapping our minds around this. How does God work through evil to accomplish good? As Matthew writes, this horrible event happened that what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. That is, Jeremiah's words received a new fulfillment in the slaughter of these little boys. The prophetic word taken from Jeremiah 31.15 reads this way. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Jeremiah originally applied these words to Israel itself. William Hendrickson had this to say. He says, to understand this quotation, it must be borne in mind that in Old Testament times, Ramah was located on the border between two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Israel and kingdom of Judah. It was situated five miles north of Jerusalem. It was the place where foreign conquerors ordered the defeated multitude to be assembled for deportation to faraway places. Because of its location, it was able to represent both kingdoms. So do you have the picture? Foreign invaders have come. They're gathering up the people. Like cattle, they're moving them to Ramah. And now they're being, and you can imagine, just like when you move the cattle out in the fields and the cattle and how they're crying and they're separated from their mothers. And this wailing and this crying. And here there are people in Rama, and they've been gathered up and they're going to be shipped off never to see their families or their homelands again. It's a terrible sight. 
Figuratively, Rachel is here in Jeremiah 31.15, pictured as being still alive, said Hendrickson. She is, as it were, watching the wretched multitudes gathered in Ramah. She listens to their weeping until she herself also begins to weep. She mourns bitterly because she is deprived of her children. First Israel goes into exile, then Judah. Rachel, who was so eager to have children. You remember Jacob and, and, and Rachel, Leah and Rachel? Do you remember this? Rachel's famous for her words, give me children or else I die. I want a baby so bad. And here Rachel's watching her children being deported. Rachel was so eager to have those children and now she sees how some are killed and others are driven away to foreign soils. She cries bitterly as first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians carry away what is most precious to her, her babies. Mothers, how do you feel about your babies? You love them. You care for them. You hurt for them. Matthew takes this prophetic word and applies it once again to this current situation. Once again, Israel suffering the loss of her children to the enemies of the Lord and tremendous weeping once again occurs. Herod, not a Jew, but a foreign king like Assyria and Babylon, once again preys upon the people of God and great suffering and sorrow ensues. Would this have happened in Jeremiah's day had the Lord's people been obedient to the Lord? It would not have. This was because they disobeyed. They were told that if you don't keep the covenant, I will send you away from this land. I will hand you over to your enemies. This is what the Lord had promised. This is what, this is what we've been reading about. It would not have happened had they obeyed. And my friends... Who is this king, Herod, and why is he in charge of them now in the days that Matthew writes or records or reflects this? Is it not for the same reason they were handed over to exile because of disobedience to the Lord? The sorrow and pain and anguish were as a result of the hearts of rebellion against the Lord, so they were given over to their enemies. And this, my friends, serves to instruct us that apart from obedience to the Lord and until a man or a woman comes to Christ, that sorrow is their lot. For the man or woman who is outside of Jesus Christ is in disobedience. I taught uh, at a Christian high school, a Bible class for a year. I did it in exchange for tuition for my, my daughters. It was not a reform school. It was... Um, in our Minion school, and I, I, every day I sat and I opened the scriptures, I read the scriptures, I taught uh, world religions, and I thought the best way to do it is teach them the truth, and then uh, everything else they can kind of sort through on their own. And I remember we came back to class, and I was um, in the, the class with my students who had been in these, this school their entire lives, and they said, Pastor Strong, you, you talk like gay people aren't happy, but they are. And I said, no, they're not. Oh. They looked aghast at me. I'm serious. They looked at me like, what is this woke heresy? Um, and I said, no, they're not happy. You understand, friends, listen to me. You're never happy when you're rebelling against God. I'm not a rocket scientist. 
But I'm pretty sure I can say that with, with all authority. A person who is in rebellion against God is never happy. So the girl says, how can you say that? They're happy. I said, they may say they're gay, but they're not gay. Suicide rates are higher. Drug abuse is higher. And I just started rattling off these statistics. Now you tell me, they're happy? This is happy? They're in rebellion against God, his design, and what he's done for them. And you want to maintain that they're happy. Now we look at the homosexual and the LGBTQ community and we want to say, well, that's them. How about you? How about you? Living in sin? Living in rebellion against God? Well, I'm not a homosexual. I don't care. It's anything. We're in rebellion against God. You're never going to be happy in the truest sense of the word. Sin is pleasant for a season. Don't get me wrong. Everyone loves tipping back a glass or two until it's the next morning and their head feels like it's got an axe stuck in it. Rebellion always leads to sorrow. It always, young people, listen to me. If ever you walk in rebellion to the Lord, you will suffer. The world will tell you you won't. I'm telling you, the Bible is telling you, you will always be mourning. The people of God suffered because they rebelled against the Lord. And we, when we rebel against Jesus Christ, we suffer. Why do we believe these lies of the world? Don't believe these lies. You are, according to Ephesians chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sins. You live as a subject of the cruel dictator Satan himself. You are enslaved to your lusts. You are not happy. You have no joy. By nature, you are a child of wrath. Again, this is Ephesians 2. You are separate from Christ, excluded from the promises of God, outside of his special love. You are hopeless, truly, because you are in the world and without God. You're you're not at peace. The people of God suffer in rebellion against God. Matthew points to his readers that this is our condition apart from Christ, living in rebellion against God. Against this suffering in Jeremiah's day, Matthew's day was a result of rebellion against God. What is then the condition of those Jews and you and your neighbors and family members who are outside of Jesus Christ living in rebellion? What is your condition? You'll go home, you'll flip on a television show, you'll have a nice meal and you'll go to bed. You'll wake up tomorrow morning and you'll, you'll have a day and you'll be busy. And you'll do this for 10, 15, 20, 30 years and eventually one day you'll be looking at your crusty hands and an IV stuck in your arm and you'll be staring at the gates of death. And all these things you put your hope in, what have they left you now? There is no joy, there is no peace, there is no happiness apart from Jesus Christ. And someday, all of us will stand before him and we will give an account. They suffered because they had rebelled against the Lord. And like our catechism says, what is it that happens to those Apart from God, they're lost. They've lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself. 
and to the pains of hell forever. That's what the person gets to look forward to who lives in rebellion against God. Matthew's point, I believe, that is that this is yet our condition in this world without the perfect obedience unto God. Again, sin is only pleasurable for a season, but its end is misery and suffering, emotional and physical scars, consciences that are tormented and guilt-ridden. We are fearful of judgment, and so we should be. It is a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for our God is a consuming fire, says the writer of Hebrews. Suffering is our lot in this world, and apart from the Lord, and apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, no one has any hope. But there is hope. But there is hope. And I don't want to leave you just on this, I'm dead in my sins, woe is me. Because, friends, the point of preaching is not to leave you there. It's to show you where you'll find life. If you'll listen, it's to show you where to find life. Listen to to Jeremiah. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 31. I read to you, or Matthew quotes to us, verse 15. Listen to verses 16 through 20. They are so sweet. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded. Remember, they're being hauled off to Assyria. People are suffering terribly. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an unrestrained calf. Bring me back, that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child indeed, as often as I have spoken against him? I certainly still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That's good. That's great news. That's great news. We read it in in Romans chapter 5. Listen again to what the Lord has done. Verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus Christ is our only hope of forgiveness for your sin. He is our only hope of reconciliation with God the Father. And in Jesus Christ alone we are brought near. And again, according to Ephesians 2, we have peace. We have peace. And God will see to it that it happens. My friends, our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. 
Listen to verses 19 through 22a. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of uh, of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. My friends, we saw this in part last week, but nothing can happen apart from the Lord's decree. Herod could not kill the child king, though he plotted and schemed and thought he had covered his bases. Remember what Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2. He says this, and it's an astounding verse, verse 23. He says, this man, speaking to Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, he says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Do you remember when he went to Capernaum and he started to preach and they wanted to kill him and he just walks right through them and they're never able to lay their hands upon him. Why is that? It's because it was not his time. There was a predetermined uh, plan. There was the foreknowledge of God who said, there is a way, a precise way, in a precise manner that my son is going to die, and it is not going to be at the hands of Herod the Great. It is not going to be under his son Archelaus. It's not going to happen this way. They're not going to stone him. They're not going to stick him with a spear. They're not going to drown him. They're not going to do anything to him. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to march to Jerusalem with his face set towards Jerusalem like flint. And he's going to march there and he's going to die on a cross. That's how my son is going to die. Not a moment late. Not a moment early. He's going to go in the way that I have determined for him to go. Thus we see this, that God the Father is still protecting the Son and led him into Egypt for safety, and so too he leads him back out of Egypt, back into Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. We are told in verse 15 that his brief time in Egypt was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Hosea 11.1, which deals with Israel who was saved out of Egypt to serve the Lord, Uh, But because of their apostasy, they did not behave as a faithful son should. But the true son of God, as we noticed last week, the true son of God does fulfill all righteousness. Jesus would perform it. And when they would only honor the Lord God with their lips, Jesus would honor the Lord God with his life, even unto death. When Israel and Judah were unkind and murderous and stealing and deceptive and employed violence, Jesus Christ came and was obedient to the Father. He was kind to the distraught. He restored life, gave life, gave food, gave safety, brought healing, was the truth, and endured violence against himself. He is the Son who performed all righteousness, something which the Jews were unable to do. Matthew points to the Jews that God himself has called Jesus Christ out of Egypt to be the son that wouldn't um, disobey him. If God demands perfection, who can live up to that standard? And so God providentially directs his servant, Joseph, to bring out of Egypt the child and his mother and to come back into Israel, making the point to us, friends, again, and there's overlap between this passage and last week's is that in God and his providence has made it clear that his son will not fail. 
And the Jews should see this and say, Jesus won't fail. Indeed, Jesus hasn't failed. Providentially, Archelaus, Herod's son, was evil like his father, but not a capable leader. And because of this, because of his wickedness, again, Joseph, fearful of him, again is warned by God in a dream and left for the regions of Galilee. So he heads north in Israel. My friends, do you see how God himself is the one who has arranged all the pieces of this puzzle so that he might make provision of salvation for the sinner? This is exactly why Matthew is recording this. It's not just a nice devotional story. It's a historic event, a historic fact of what God has done. And so he directs his servant, Joseph, directing him directly, you and I indirectly, by his word and his providence. And Jesus himself was humbled at birth in order to save you. We wrap this this passage up looking at this. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. My friends, Jesus Christ was humbled at birth to save us to turn our mourning, our sorrow, into laughter. What we see is that God's hand was directing the Lord's life and that even where he was raised uh, would be consistent with his mission in life. Again, because of Joseph's fear and the Lord's dream to Joseph, Joseph takes the child and his mother to the north district to Galilee and settles in a little town called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken, says Matthew, through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this may also have explained how he got from Bethlehem to Nazareth, because in John uh, chapter 7, 52, we're told that the Jews are saying that the prophets, uh, no prophet arises out of Galilee. So there would be some question. How is it that he ends up in Galilee, this Jesus? How can we believe? Well, Matthew's answering this question. How did he get from Bethlehem into to Nazareth? But the bigger point, I believe, is what in the world is a Nazarene? And it's not to be confused with the Nazarite, right? Remember Samson, Samuel, they were Nazarites. They couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't touch dead things. And they, they weren't supposed to eat anything or drink anything they had to do with the vine, with grapes. Samuel obeyed. Samson's a whole other story. He did everything just the opposite that he should have done. A Nazarene, you're ready for this, a Nazarene is someone from Nazareth. <laughs> That's a profound truth here. What is so important about Nazareth, the answer is, friends, nothing. Nothing's so important about Nazareth. It's not important. In fact, it's a place that many would hold in disdain. Nathaniel said in John 1.46, said to Jesus, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That says it all. The point being, not that Nazareth was the most terrible place, but that it was a nothing town. There's nothing important about it. It's not like Jerusalem or Damascus or Rome or some other city where greatness is heralded, uh, where greatness comes from. But it was an insignificant place. William Hendrickson says the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. Nazareth was esteemed of small account, and so were its citizens, the Nazarenes. 
There is no one specific verse in the Old Testament, but many verses which speak of Jesus and his lowliness. That's the point when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. Notice in John 19, it says the Nazarene, the, the king of the Jews, or Jesus of Nazareth. How can you be a king and be from Nazareth? Things like that just aren't, aren't done. Psalm 22, 6 through 8, we read this. And you know, it's a fascinating thing. When you read the Psalms, stop thinking that it's merely about David. Stop thinking that it's mainly about you. And start understanding them as being mainly about Jesus. You know, you never see Jesus complaining. And he's not complaining in the Psalms, but if you want to say, Jesus fought such opposition all the time, his entire ministry, his whole life, he's opposed. He's suffering the entire time. His humiliation characterized his entire life of suffering. And yet you never see him. You see him go off in a boat or he, he'll go off in a mountain and he will, he will pray. He will fast. He will sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. But you never hear his words. You want to hear his words, my friends. Read the Psalms and you start to see this is Jesus. Ultimately, the Psalms are holding out to us. I believe Jesus Christ in his suffering. David was a type of the Christ to come. You want to see how, David's, or how Jesus suffered? Read the Psalms and start thinking how they apply to Jesus Christ. Here he says in Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man of reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. What does he say? I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I live in the town of Nazareth. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Matthew points out that Jesus was brought into Nazareth because his greatness would be seen, my friends, in his lowliness. That's a different message than what the world has. I want a king who's big and strong and powerful and and handsome and smart and witty and rich. I want all those things. Your king came despised and lowly and suffering and humbled and persecuted from day one. That's your Messiah. And he would undergo all of these things for the benefit of the sinner, my friends, for the benefit of me and for the benefit of you. He left glory and became a man, suffered the indignities of this world, the temptations of Satan, the rejection of men and the wrath and curse of God on Calvary's cross, also that you might have peace with God and have your sin dealt with in full in order that you might know true abiding joy and happiness. You therefore ought not to disregard Jesus Christ and his lordship. 
His humbling was in conjunction with his entire mission. Summed up nicely in 2 Corinthians 8 9, and I close with this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and pray that your blessing and your mercies be upon us. And now as we partake of this Lord's Supper, we pray that we would see and understand how the one who was rich left his riches in order that the ones who were impoverished might be made rich. That his grace, um, by his love, he has accomplished these things in order that we might know laughter in order that we might know joy and have a true abiding happiness. We ask, O oh Father, that we would not reject Jesus Christ, but that we would love him all the more and that his name would be glorified. We humbly ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.